Would you open up your Bible, please, to Genesis chapter... We'll start with chapter 2, and we'll be moving to Genesis 1 shortly after that. And you start with Genesis chapter 2. Last week, we started a mini-series on the biblical ethic of sex, and didn't know how long it was going to take, but I think, uh, Lord willing, unless some additional question or issue uh, comes up, this will be the conclusion of our series today. If male and female and marriage and sex are merely what the world calls social constructs, if our traditional understanding of these things is just simply where we are in the course of human evolution, then we can ignore the dividing line down the middle of the road, take out the guardrails, cut the brakes, and go where we please as fast as we want. If this is simply these things, male and female, marriage and sex are simply where we are. Our understanding of them is simply where we are in the course of evolution. But if male and female and marriage and sex are a gift of God's creation entrusted to us for His glory and our good, then we must live within the limits that He has laid down knowing that our life depends on it. It is a matter of stewardship. Do you ever think about how foolish it is for us and and how sinful it is for us as Christians to use God's gifts as suits us, as, as simply according to our own personal preferences? How foolish that is? I, I think I've told you before, but it's been a while, but I had a friend in seminary um, who had come from Nicaragua, Central American country, to the United States when he was about 15 years old. He actually came to Louisiana. I believe they landed in New Orleans. And after they, you know, had been admitted and everything, they got out onto the interstate and into the city, and he was shocked at how, and I know we complain about traffic in the cities, right? But he was shocked at how orderly traffic was. Because stop signs and traffic lanes didn't mean anything in his country. Everybody just drove however they wanted to drive and ignored all the rules. But of all people, it is the most foolish for us as Christians to ignore God's rules, cross over the limits that He has laid down, and drive however we please. We must wake up before we find that we have driven into the far country and are lost, and the Father's house is a distant memory. And if in these matters, when we talk about sex, if in these matters in your heart you know that you have driven far off into the far country and the Father's house is a distant memory and you, because of your sexual immorality, fellowship with God seems like a thing long ago. I want you to know by the truth of the Word of God that there is a way back. And it is by grace. It is by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is there a way back, but there is a welcome back by the Father through the Son to the Father's house. 
it is crucial for you and me. If we are going to live a God-glorifying life, that we understand all of life in this human realm according to God's revelation. We must know what life is in God's world by God's word. And that includes, of course, this, this matter of sex. Now, this short series has four parts to it. And just to recap quickly, semi-quickly, we covered the first two parts last week. We first of all considered the terrible cost of sexual immorality. It is not something that the New Testament lets us ignore. We ignore it, obviously, to our peril. But the cost of sexual immorality is that all of those who are sexually immoral without repentance will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God, as we saw from Ephesians. And I could have gone to many of Paul's letters and shown you very explicitly, it's so plain, what the cost of sexual immorality without repentance is. After that first part, we then we went back. We started... We started with the end. What will happen at the end of the age? And we, we began with Revelation 18, if you recall. But then we went back to the beginning and to Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, we see God's mandate for male and female and marriage and sex. And in that specific order, God created sexual intercourse for the permanent, sacred, covenant union of marriage between one man and one woman. So we saw Genesis 2 in those couple verses. You can see it there if you'll look. The man first leaves his parents to second, hold fast in marriage to his wife, after which, third, the two become one flesh. This covenant union is entered into publicly before God and is consummated in sexual intercourse privately, yet still before God. So here was our conclusion then. From Genesis 2, verse 24, and this very even the sequence and order of these things, that any sexual activity outside of the heterosexual Monogamous union of marriage constitutes sexual immorality. And that is true whether that sexual activity is played out in the body or the mind. If it's outside of heterosexual monogamous union of marriage, it is sexual immorality. So that was the first two parts of this series. And today we're going to consider two more things. First of all, we're going to consider together the four purposes that God has given for sex. And then we're going to trace the biblical storyline, hopefully concisely. Um, we're going to trace the biblical storyline of sex from all the way from creation to the restoration of all things which will occur at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, let's start with the purpose. And of course, last week I, I told you what the ultimate purpose of sex is which we already know, because the same purpose for sex applies to everything. It is for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever activity you engage in, in this human realm, 
do it for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So it is the ultimate purpose of sex. Now God gives to us in his word four secondary purposes, which are to the glory of God. This would be, I think, um, one of the, these sermons that I, may be very helpful if you were taking some notes. If you want to use the back of your bulletin and uh, may not have a, a pen or whatever, but this would be a good one to take notes on. I don't, I don't want this service together to be reduced to a classroom feel, but if it does come to a classroom feel, it is, it is to the glory of God. Here are the four purposes of sex. Number one, to effect the marriage covenant. That's effect with an E. To effect the marriage covenant. I'm going to give this to you, uh, these four purposes in five E's, okay? Hey, I worked hard to alliterate this. I don't know how helpful it'll be, but... Number one, to effect the marriage covenant. Two, to engender children. Three, to express and to enjoy marital love. And number four, to exemplify the gospel. We'll go over these in turn. We'll take our time. Uh, the first purpose of marriage to the glory of God is to effect the marriage covenant. The man and the woman enter into the marriage covenant at their wedding. God oversees it. The public witnesses it. And the state recognizes it. And by their wedding, they have become one legal social and economic entity. And so they are wedded publicly before God. They will effect the marriage covenant privately before Him. It is sexual intercourse that consummates the marriage union. Genesis 2 verse 24 again. The man shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. One flesh referring explicitly to sexual intercourse. That's the consummation of the marriage covenant. So as this man has given his name to his wife, so he gives himself to his wife. And as she receives his name, so she receives him. I don't think that the the binding together, the joining of the name is just a thing. It's not just a tradition. I think it's loaded with Christian meaning. Because this is what we are doing in marriage. We are uniting together. Two people becoming one. So sex is the climactic expression of the marriage unity. That the two have become one. The first act of sexual intercourse between them is to consummate the marriage covenant. And every following act of sexual intercourse renews the marriage covenant. The Bible often refers to sexual intercourse with the metaphor of knowing. Because in sexual intercourse, you have the deepest human relational knowing that there is. That's why we call it an intimacy. And so the Bible says that Adam knew his wife Eve. And she conceived and bore a son. And it says that Joseph didn't know his wife until she had given birth to her son, 
Jesus. So the Bible speaks of sex as this knowing because it's an intimacy and in this complete vulnerability and in this complete transparency, more than a body is shared as one gives himself, herself wholly to the other, completely accepting the other. This is making yourself completely known and completely knowing the other. That's why the Bible speaks of sexual intercourse as knowing. It's the deepest intimacy. So the first purpose of sex is to effect the marriage covenant, or perhaps you could say establish. It is the consummation of the covenant. The second purpose of sex is to engender children. Sex within marriage is for the procreation of the human race. Now I'll have you turn back to Genesis 1. Second purpose, to engender children. If you'll look at Genesis 1, beginning in verse 27, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to subdue it and have dominion. And so God gave them marriage because it is God's desire to fill this earth with His image bearers to showcase His glory. He entrusted the earth to us. He gave us work to keep it. And He gave us marriage in order to fill it. That's why God gave us marriage. This is what sex is for. It's in the marriage bed that new life begins. And it is a shame, a great shame to our society that with the invention of the pill that sex was cut off from procreation. So that was no longer a worry. And as we know, it threw the the doors wide open for rampant sexual immorality when sex was cut off from this purpose of God. So the second purpose, here are the first two, to affect the marriage covenant and second, to engender children. It's for procreation. The third purpose is to express and to enjoy mutual love. Now sex, of course, we know it's a very private thing, which is why some of you would rather not hear a sermon series as short as the sermon series might be on this matter. It's a private thing and it, you know, can make us blush, but that doesn't mean that it's a dirty thing. It doesn't mean as, as some Christians have decided that it's just a necessary evil. God created sex good. God created it beautiful and pure and He created it for the pleasure of heart and soul and body intimacy. He created it for the pleasure of heart and soul and body intimacy. The Christian view, the biblical view of sex is the exact opposite of being prudish. In fact, one of the books of the Bible is filled with the talk of it. The Song of Solomon is a series of love songs between a young married couple as they reflect back on their their romance and their pursuit of love and the fulfillment of their love in marriage. It's a biblical celebration of sexual desire and pursuit and fulfillment. And so it is God. It's God's Word. God is celebrating sex. 
Now, the first voice, uh, and just for your reassurance, I'm just going to read to you a couple portions, a couple of the tamer portions of this book. The first voice is the woman's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. She sings in, in verse 4, Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And honestly, there are rather erotic things all throughout this book uh, sung back and forth that are veiled slightly in poetic metaphors. In, in the second chapter, she sings again, I am sick with love, meaning she's intoxicated with love. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or does of the field. This is poetry and gazelles and does were in the ancient world symbols of sex. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That is, until the right appointed time within the limits that God has given. In fact, that that word that I, I just read to you is a refrain throughout the book where the young woman says to her, her, her peers, don't stir up or awaken this love, this erotic love before the time until it pleases. In a, a series of sexually charged songs, this warning, this instruction is laid down. Entering into the marriage covenant says, I want to be with you. And I want to be with you completely. I want to belong to you. And I want to belong to you completely. Heart and soul, mind and strength. To make myself completely known and to completely know you. To share all I have and give you all that I am. Entering into the marriage covenant says that I don't want to be free anymore. I want to be joined to you and all of you. And so only the marriage covenant creates that security in which someone can freely and joyfully with pure, clean conscience and freedom give themselves away. Only the marriage covenant can create that security. So we have the, the issue, the question of cohabitation, which is much talked about in our day, a couple living together um, and kind of experimenting with, with married life before they actually are married. It's talked about much because it's practiced so much in our day. But one can no more try out marriage than one can try out lifelong commitment. How do you try for a while, lifelong commitment. So I'll say it again, one can no more try out marriage than one can try out lifelong commitment. And it's in that permanent, sacred, covenant union and commitment that one can give themselves completely away to the other. The fourth purpose of sex is to exemplify the love of God in Christ. That is to exemplify to picture the love of God for us in the gospel of His Son. 
It is not only for a husband and wife to know each other intimately, but as with all of his gifts, God gave us sex in order for us to know him. It is not only for that beautiful, monogamous commitment that we we give and we obtain knowledge of one another, but it's in this that we also know God. God gave this to us in order that we may know Him. One theologian summed it up like this. We were made sexual in order to make God more deeply knowable. We were made sexual in order to make God more deeply knowable. So how does sex in marriage tell us about God? I'll give you a couple of things here. And we think, what? I, you know, connecting the dots is difficult. But once you hear it, it, it makes so much sense. And you realize the beauty of this. As a man is a man and not a woman, but becomes one with her. So God is God and not us. But he has brought us to himself and made us one with him. You see? As a man is a man and not a woman, but becomes one with her. So God is God and not us, but has made us one with him. Not in a sexual union by no means, but a spiritual union. So the human sexual union becomes a picture. It points away from itself to something that's even greater. And I'll, I'll show you this in scripture. First Corinthians chapter six, verses 16 and 17. You don't have to turn there, but Paul is talking about sexual intercourse and he says that in sex, two become one flesh. And he says, and so it is by the gospel. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. We see the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul writes there and he quotes from Genesis 2 in that passage that we've read over and over again. He says, he quotes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and two shall become one flesh. Then he says this, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God brought the man and woman into oneness and marriage and by sex because he would bring us into oneness with himself in Christ by the gospel. Marriage and sex within marriage were given to us because of the gospel. As marriage is the ultimate human oneness and sex the ultimate expression of that oneness. So marriage and sex picture the gospel in which Christ has loved us and made us one with Him. Do you see why God gave to us this gift? It's, it's not so that we would ultimately fix all of our love on our spouse, but so that in this union with our spouse, we would be directed away to ultimately fix our love on God because we know His love. Through the gospel, marriage and sex within marriage were designed to enthrall us with the love of God so that we might enjoy Him and His love to His glory forever. So God gave us sex for these four purposes, all to His glory. 
to effect the marriage covenant, to engender children, to express and enjoy mutual love, and to exemplify the love of God in the gospel. These are the four purposes of sex, to bring glory to God. Now, I think it will also help us if we trace the biblical storyline of sex from creation to the fall, to redemption, and the restoration. And I I told you last week that if you want a Christian worldview of any matter, any hot-button issue or whatever you're talking about, from the, the rights of the unborn, you can talk about wine, you can talk about cremation, just a few random things there. And as we said, these things of male and female and marriage and sex, you can come to an understanding and a Christian understanding and worldview if you see them through the lens, the biblical lens of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So number one, first in the creation, we see that God created sex good. All the love and all the beauty and all the pleasure of sexual intercourse and marriage are from God. All that makes it intoxicating in marriage is from God. And I'm going to read something to you in a moment, but I I know we can be like, you know, are you sure? You know, what? What we are doing, what we are seeing, and when we don't get that, is we're seeing that we haven't connected all of the dots in the Christian worldview that there are gaps and there are holes in our understanding of creation, that we would divorce any of the beauty or pleasure and goodness to be found in creation from the one who made it is just is not a Christian thing. thing. So in our process of sanctification and renewing our minds, we need to come to understanding of these things. As one person has said, God ought to be treasured above sexual pleasure and tasted in sexual pleasure. The very delights and passions and ecstasies of God-designed sexual intercourse and marriage are the kinds of pleasure God Himself conceived and created. They come from Him. They are something of Him. He is that kind of pleasure-knowing pleasure-imagining, pleasure-creating God. And therefore, when we taste those pleasures, we are tasting something of God. He made sexual pleasure, and so He is greater. And He made it to communicate something of Himself. He never meant it to be an alternative pleasure to pleasure in Him. He meant for Himself to be seen and savored in it. I've said it before, I'll say it again borrowing from another. All beauty is God's beauty. And let's add to that. All pleasure is God's pleasure. Now we know that, we'll use Moses as an example, Hebrews 11, that um, he forsook the, the pleasures of sin for a season in order to suffer with the people of God, to bear the reproach of Christ. So we can say, wait, wait a second. You say all pleasures are God's pleasure. We know that there's pleasures in sin. But but understand something. We are talking about pleasure that Satan did not create. Pleasure that Satan did not conceive. He is not a creator. He doesn't make anything. He is a thief. 
So he steals what God has made. He warps it and twists it according to his own heart, and then he sells it back to us in his package of lies. He who is the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. And he does this to the destruction of our souls. But all pleasure is God's pleasure. Satan doesn't create it. He must take it away and pervert it. God didn't pull the pleasures of sex and marriage out of thin air. He brought them into being from His own being. Which does not mean that God is a sexual being. He is not. It means, though, that all of the purpose and all of the meaning and all of the goodness of sex in marriage is from our God. But this brings us to the fall. Second thing. When Satan did lie, and the first man and woman exalted themselves above God and committed treason against Him. And by the fall, not only do we exalt ourselves above God, but we exalt God's gifts above God. To continue from my earlier reading, if God ceases to be treasured above and tasted in sexual pleasure, that's when it becomes poisonous, just like the fruit of the tree in the garden. The key passage to understand how the fall, the rebellion of mankind has been carried out in sexual immorality in the human experience. The key passage to see this is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. I'm, I, but I will submit this statement. I think that it's, uh, I think it's a bold statement, but I think that it holds true according to scripture. The unbelief an idolatry of the human race is expressed in sexual immorality more than in anything else in all of creation. I believe that's not only true in our day where it's so obvious, but it's it was also true and could be seen, and it's on record to be seen in the ancient world as well. That our unbelief and our idolatry is expressed in sexual immorality more than in anything else in creation. That brings us third to the cross. Because we know that those who are sexually immoral without repentance will be cast out of the kingdom of God. But by the cross, we who are natives of the domain of darkness can by the mercy of God be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son because of the cross of Jesus Christ. By the cross of Jesus Christ, we are redeemed from our sexual immorality. And it's by the cross that we find the meaning of our sexuality and sexual activity. Sex in the context of the covenant of marriage is a picture of God's love for His own and our union with Him in Christ. The gospel was not given to us to explain sex. Marriage and sex were given to us to help explain the gospel. To point us beyond it, beyond marriage and beyond sex, to something greater. And the key passage for understanding this is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through the end of that chapter. This brings us to the fourth stage, the restoration of all things. When a skeptical group of Sadducees 
asked Jesus, you may remember this episode from his life, when they asked Jesus about a specific marriage scenario on the other side of the resurrection, this is what Jesus answered them. He said, when they, that is, when humanity rises from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now the question is, why? Why is there no marriage in glory? And on the new earth, why is there no sex in heaven? And the answer is this. Because the purpose of sex and the purpose of marriage will be finally fulfilled. Again, this goes back to what we see through the cross of Jesus and the gospel. Marital love and oneness point us to the love of God and the oneness of God's people in Christ. When we are in glory, the picture of this that we have in marriage and sex will be finally fulfilled. We'll have made our way past the sign giving us direction, and we will have arrived at the destination. And the symbols will give way to the reality. Just like this. Just like this. This points us back. We know the Lord's Supper These elements point us back to the cross of Jesus Christ, His body broken for us, His blood shed for us. And they point us forward as we sang to the wedding feast. But when we arrive at the destination, the symbols will pass away. It's true with the Lord's Supper. It's true with baptism. It is true with marriage and sex within it. That these things are pointing away from themselves to something greater. We will be married to God. Not in physical, sexual union, but spiritual union. And we will be perfectly one with Him. We will be presented. Ephesians 5, we will be presented to Christ in splendor. As His bride, we'll be presented to Him in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Holy and without blemish. Will you be among the multitude? who on that day cry out like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. An angel shows this to John. It says in Revelation 21, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. This is what marriage and sex within marriage are for, to point us beyond to this, to the wedding of the Lamb. As one person has said, the Bible is a book about marriage. And it's true. It begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. It begins with the earthly good that God created in Eden before the fall. And it ends with the cross created, heavenly fulfillment on the other side of our resurrection. One day, that day that we long for, the day of Christ, human marriage and sex will be no more. The two of them 
will be fulfilled. Complete. And these symbols that we cherish in this life and that we must protect in this life will finally give way to the reality that we are longing for more than the symbols that we cherish. And isn't that true in our hearts? That we long for the reality, for the fulfillment, for the destination, for the arrival, for the marriage of the Lamb to come, even more than we cherish the symbols that we enjoy now. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, You have made sense of this for us. And in giving us Your truth and making sense of it, You protect us. You give us freedom. You give us life. You have given us a life that is not just carried out according to our own whims, without any boundaries, no guardrails, no breaks, but You have loaded this life. You have given it purpose. You have given it meaning. Father, I pray that we would be pure. We would be moral. We would be obedient. Not to earn our salvation, but as gratitude for the salvation that you have given to us already. Not to earn your love, but because you love us. I pray that we would be pure. I pray, Father, that every mind here will have come to a a better, clearer, deeper understanding of what these gifts are for. And I pray, Father, that every heart would come to a conviction and to, to a resolve to walk with You in obedience in these matters. I pray, Father, that there would be new joy in these things as we realize how it is all for You and to Your worship and praise. I pray that there would be new joy and, and new pleasure that we would experience Your gifts with, with worship. Father, and I pray also that every heart here would be reassured even as we know our guilt and our falling short. Pray that we would be reassured of Your love, Your acceptance and our, our union with You through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ who took upon the guilt of our sexual immorality upon Himself and paid for it in full and announced it is finished. There is no more price to be paid. There is no more wrath for the children of God. Now we are free. We belong to You. For that we praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.